On April 29th, Tony Sage, director of the Ash Center, and Meg Rithmore, professor at Harvard Business School, spoke about the future prospects of Chinese cities. Will we see booming growth, or are they doomed to fail? This event was hosted by the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School, along with six other partners. So this is a timely topic, and it's quite clear that effective urbanization is the biggest challenge facing China's new leadership, and particularly China's new premier, Li Keqiang. Li Keqiang, we know, is a major proponent of the idea that urbanization will keep driving the economy forward, and also is the most effective way to iron out the inequalities that have, that have arisen during the reform period. However, there are considerable differences about the most effective means of urbanization. Li Keqiang, the premier himself, seems to favor uh, the ideas of the uh, anthropologist Fei Xiaotong with a reliance on the development of small towns amidst a rural idyll. It's the kind of memories that I think most of us have that somehow there used to exist a beautiful rural past and there used to exist some a rural town entity where everybody felt part of a community and happy. Of course, it certainly didn't exist uh, where I grew up in Britain, and I don't think it existed in most places of the world. Much of the villages were nasty, very brutish, and uh, often quite short. But anyway, that is certainly one idea of how to develop out of uh, small towns. But reality has been somewhat different, and China, I think, has finished up with a mix of models that is distinct from America's urban experience and also different from that of Japan, a model which I think could be usefully copied uh, by China despite uh, the political differences between the two countries. The growth of urban centers, of course, is also seen as a major mechanism for boosting domestic demand and aiding the shift to consumption as a primary driver of future sustainable economic growth. Now, if you look at China's uh, five-year plan, which is to cover the period 2011 until 2015, it proposed supporting the growth of metropolitan regions and urban clusters of large cities orbited by smaller satellites. Now, that seems to me to be an accommodation of a policy that combines urbanization focused on major metropolises, which the Chinese talk about, or it seemed to mean when they're talking about Changshihua, for urbanization, and the expansion of smaller towns in the countryside. And there you see the phrase of Changzhenhua. That seems to be, to a large extent, uh, what uh, Li Keqiang and others had been proposing. However, I think gradually the reality and policy is moving towards a policy that accepts denser cities. So they're talking about developing five national central cities, Beijing, Shanghai, Tianjin, Guangzhou, Chongqing, and then six regional central cities. So second-tier cities, effectively, Shenzhen, Wuhan, Nanjing, uh, Shenyang, uh, Chengdu, and Xi'an. Uh, fortunately, Meg has a lot of experience in working in Chongqing and knows much about Chengdu, so both tier levels are things that Meg has worked on. And that 12-year plan identifies 20 cities for urban expansion in the future. In a recent book, Miller uh, notes, 
China seems set to follow a dual, mo a dual model of concentrated and distributed urbanization. However, there are a number of challenges uh, that face effective urbanization in China. First, China uses land very inefficiently. Cities now are much less dense than they were previously. So one question that arises is can optimal planning uh, be developed? Can the different agencies that drive urbanization uh, be more coordinated uh, rather than the kind of ad hoc patterns that we've to, tended to see? The second major problem that then arises, and I'm sure this is something we'll come back to, is whether the program of urbanization can be financed. And if it can be financed, how will that be done? Now to date, cities in China have relied on three major funding sources uh, for infrastructure and other investments, such as social welfare, low-cost housing. The first two of the funding sources have been from land sales, converting land to development land, and the second is from loans from the local investment corporations. In theory, local governments are not allowed to take on debt or issue bonds, although there's a lot of talk about this now, and there is limited experimentation taking place with subnational levels of government taking on debt and possibly issuing bonds. Zhejiang has been one example. I'm not sure whether Chongqing is, is involved in this or not. At the same time, you have to bear in mind that local governments in China carry the greatest responsibilities for payments for public services, education, health, and other welfare services. Uh, local governments carry over 90% of the costs of those uh, uh, services. This is very unusual, very unlike most other countries, many other countries in the world, certainly unlike many other countries in Asia, to carry such a high burden of the expenditure through the local government. So what that does then is that if those primary sources of revenue are liable to dry up in the future, or at least maybe not, they won't dry up, but slow down as major sources of revenue, then we see government being driven um, by seeking other mechanisms for financing. In the past, this has been the major factor driving urban officials to expand their boundaries as they can incorporate more land for sales. If you look at riots in China, it's very clear that local governments are always looking for ways to augment uh, their formal expenditures. So it started off in the mid-1990s with the IOU problems, the Baitiao, as it was called in China, where essentially uh, local farmers, uh, when they deliver their crops, got an IOU from the government promising to pay them at unspecified date. They never did pay them, of course, so then you got riots around that issue. The government closed that down. Then you got riots around illegal fees and levies. The government closed that down. They abolished the agricultural tax. And then you see them shifting into this question of land sales and conversion of land sales to raise the revenues. So a lot of this is driven by the heavy burden that local governments, not just urban but also rural governments, have to take on in terms of financing their social obligations and their infrastructure obligations. Now some 25% of local government revenue comes from the sale of land. The third uh, current major source of income, which also distorts the urbanization pattern, is that the third source of income comes from taxes on industrial production. As a result of that, we see the endless expansion of industrial zones, high-tech zones, because that way you can generate uh, those taxes on that industrial production.
The important thing is it does not matter if the enterprises in the zone are profitable or not. You don't have to make a profit. The tax is not on profit. The tax is on production value, not profit. So wherever you go in China, you see the development of industrial parks, high-tech zones, because it's seen as the third main source of revenue generation. Now there is now discussion of major expansion of bond markets to finance urbanization and alternatives, which I'm sure Meg will uh, go into in more detail later. Thirdly, though, at the core of this, there's the question of what to do about land rights. None of this really can be resolved. Many of the rural problems in China cannot be successfully resolved until there's more clarity about land rights. <coughs> as I said uh, earlier, as we know, the transfer of land for development by local governments has been the cause of considerable unrest uh, in China. Uh, in a survey we did, uh, we found that in those areas where there had been land transfers, if the local government hadn't engaged their local population in discussions, or if there hadn't been clear announcements of what was to happen with the land transfers, there was inevitably protests and unrest. Interesting in those cases where government had provided information, had included local residents in discussions, there tended not to be unrest. Now, Chengchu and Chongqing, which brings us close to Meg's own research, have both been conducting interesting experiments. Chengdu with land swaps and Chongqing with land certificates. I don't know how they work, but this is something that Meg is a specialist on. And then fourthly, as the fourth major challenge, there are the socioeconomic consequences that need to be dealt with. Uh, what we've seen in the press lately of all the air pollution, but even more significant problem is perhaps water pollution in China. And then there's the question of the need to integrate massive numbers of migrants into the cities. And that effective integration is, of course, hampered by the way the household registration, registration scheme operates in China. So we're very lucky to have, for the main piece of the show this afternoon, Meg, on her birthday, here with us uh, to talk about this. Sadly, she turned us down at the Kennedy School for the wealth and glamour of the Harvard Business School. But she is uh, a PhD here of ours. She's now assistant professor in business government in the international economy unit. And she's been working on broadly the political economy of development, but with her case study focus on China. She's written a case about development of Chongqing. She's published an article about the Chongqing model that I have some uh, concerns and questions about, not her article, but is there really a Chongqing model? I actually think the Chongqing model is the model of urban development through most of China. It's just been camouflaged by all the uh, elite politics uh, we saw around the Borsilai affair. She's also a faculty associate at Weatherhead Center, at the Fairbank Center, but most importantly for us today, she's been carrying out deep uh, field work and research, uh, originally in northeast of China, but more recently in Chongqing. So please welcome Meg uh, to speak with us. Before I, I start the talk, I just want to give you some idea of, um, of my own research. Um, so I'm, I'm finishing a book manuscript, which I hope to be finished in, in the fall of this year. Um, so save your money for some time between you know, 2015 and 2016. Who knows? These things take forever. That's in part based on um, what I call China's third major land revolution, which occurred um, from the 1980s through the present. And I'll talk about what I mean by that. Um, and, the, and the book sort of has two components. One component is um, a component of how 
uh, property rights and ideas about property rights uh, were generated subnationally and differently in different cities in China. And so when we talk about China having multiple models, I would say uh, multiple models um, all the way down, basically, that the very rules of economic engagement in different cities are quite different. And the second component of the book, which I'll be talking more about today, is sort of the evolution of the national discourse of property rights and land politics in China. And so, um, so Professor Sage brought up this issue of the, the main questions, one of which is, what are they going to do about land? And that's the sort of key thing um, that, I'm, that I'm going to talk about uh, today. And so, um, just to give you an idea, the case studies that I work on in northeastern China um, were in Dongbei, for many of you, the northeast region, um, Dalian, Harbin, and Changchun. And Dalian, which is um, a city on the coast of, of northeastern China, was in many ways the one to initiate the whole idea of land financing um, under, by the, that, at that time, um, a relatively unknown mayor by the name of Bo Xilai. Um, and so Bo Xilai, who was the mayor of, of Dalian in the 90s, went on to become obviously the person you, many of you know very well, um, who's now been rather deposed from Chinese politics, but like anyone who says, you know, sort of, I was there first. Um, so I feel a particular need to understand what's going on in Chongqing as well as more generally. So today I'll, I'll talk um, mostly at a very general level about how these things work in China with, um, with lots of examples, mostly from, from Chongqing and some from Jiangsu. Um, so that being said, um, I'll get us started. So I, I've called my talk The Making of the Construction Economy, Urban Development in China. And so the basic question um, I, we can start out thinking is, is it possible uh, for China to, to urbanize in an intelligent and sustainable way, um, given its growth demands? And uh, the answer is, is going to be a pretty unequivocal no from me, um, that I'm going to come across as pretty pessimistic about what we can expect from urbanization in China. and that. In fact, the more, um, the more we understand uh, the ways in which uh, the economy in China and some national governments in particular are quite addicted to land expansion and land financing, the more we'll come to understand exactly how these institutions work. And so, um, so, so in many ways, we can think of China as a construction economy. And so sort of the statement, if you build it, they will come, applies nowhere more than China. And the international community has recently looked on urbanization in China, both the construction of infrastructure, the pace of urbanization and urban construction with equal parts awe and suspicion. Um, so on the one hand, um, China has the, the, the construction of urban China in the past 30 years has been the largest construction project in the history of the world. Um, at some point, at any given point, you know, in the past 20 years, people argue about whether it's half or uh, three-fourths of the world's cranes are located in Chinese cities. And so we see this, this process of massive urbanization in part as an achievement of growth of the regime and a sort of metaphor for how quickly and, and how sustainably um, Chinese cities have grown, but also um, perhaps as something that, that, that reveals some deep inefficiencies and problems within the Chinese political economy. And I'm afraid I'm going to fall on the latter end of that. Um, so we think about this, so you know, these are just basically images of, of, of China's construction. You can see the for sale sign on the Changchang, on the Great Wall here, the idea that in fact, you know, China has gone from a place where the real estate constituted basically a negligible portion of GDP to about a quarter when we calculate everything that's involved with real estate investment as well as the secondary effects that Professor Sage was talking talking about demand generation, when people talk about construction materials or even durable goods for households, um, it's about a quarter of GDP. So no wonder it's very important. Um, so before we, before we get really started, it's important to understand uh, how exactly the national institutions appear in law governing um, land in China. So despite having gone from zero, essentially zero, to 25% real estate, um, this, China has done it without uh, privatizing land rights themselves. 
So urban land in China continues to be owned by the state, Guojia, whereas rural land is owned by the collective, GT Gongyoda. And so what that means, um, obviously, is that land use rights are commodified, but land ownership rights are not. And so there's a leasehold system in China. Um, so there are commodifications of, and, and separations of use and, and, and ownership rights. And you can, in, and, and basically businesses or individuals lease land from the state for extended periods of time based on the type of use. Um, and this transfer of the land use rights occurs in a number of different ways. It occurs through administrative allocation, where uh, local governments negotiate the price of the land lease uh, with, 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 the, with the borrowers, um, or also through um, auctions, so supposedly public auctions. Um, and so this is sort of the regime as we know it now. Um, and everyone sort of, the scholarship at least, sort of takes for granted that this is how things are and has a number of hypotheses about how they might move from here. But as I've um, been doing more and more research on this, I've become somewhat dissatisfied with our understanding of where things are. And in fact, um, dissatisfied with the amount of research on where things come from. So that we know in 1986 there was the beginning of a land use law um, and, and things changed from there. But what exactly those movements were, um, we don't know much about. Um, and so that's what I'll sort of talk about today. So the talk has basically five parts. Um, first, I want to talk about land as China's most important economic and political issues. And then look a little bit to explaining China's land dilemma. So given that we, we have these problems surrounding land, what are the explanations that we have? And so Professor Sage mentioned property rights over land. Um, so some people attribute this to a perverse fiscal situation or all of these. But, but we have to really, I think, develop a, a pretty serious and, and precise hypothesis about what we mean by the land problem if we're going to start discussing proposals to fix it. And then, of course, um, I will peddle my own theory about how exactly these things work and what it says, I think, more profoundly about Chinese capitalism, and then conclude with these prospects for reform, hopefully, which will open up some debate um, for the latter part of our program. So that being said, um, I'll begin. So many of you, have, if you read the, the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times, you see these kinds of articles over and over again. Land is an economic problem, so we know that um, the NDRC, as well as the, you know, the, a bunch of the, the planning organizations, are involved in this almost daily tweaking of the property market. So there are curbs on how many households or the amounts of you can be approved for a mortgage. Um, there are curbs, there are taxes on secondary or tertiary properties, and then those taxes are removed. And it does seem like the CCP is in a bit of a delicate dance, always trying to encourage some growth in the real estate sector, but not too much growth in the real estate sector. So sort of stuck in between these different desires. We know also that the GDP growth rate, so this is the growth rate itself here on the y-axis, um, tracks pretty seriously the real estate growth rate. Um, so this is not unusual in most developed economies or developing economies, um, but it's particularly a tight relationship in China. So we see very much that the movements of real estate right, track the movements of GDP growth. So we know that these things are, are intimately related. So for that reason, land is a sort of fundamental economic problem um, because the, the, the land supply and, the real, and controls on the real estate sector have become very much instruments of macroeconomic regulation. And I'll talk more about what I mean by that basically for the rest of the talk. But as Professor Sage mentioned, land is also an instrument of financing. So land financing, Tudi Taizong, um, is, is, is the thing that we, we most talk about when we talk about why it is local governments are so addicted to land. So budgetary revenue, the taxes available to local governments, have declined dramatically since the mid-1990s. And that's, that's a, a result of a very intentional fiscal recentralization undertaken in 1994. So before that, we had local governments 
um, that retained most of the taxes that accrued to them. After which, um, and after, as a result of the 1994 reform, most of the tax revenue was, was, as we say, handed up to the central government in China. Yet, the, the most of the burdens, as Professor Sage mentioned, social welfare, um, infrastructure creation, um, you know, education, healthcare, these kinds of things, remained at the local level. Which means this gigantic gap you see here between local and central share of revenues and expenditures must be financed in some other way. So Professor Sage also mentioned um, that local governments in China are not actually allowed to issue their own debt. They're not allowed to take on bonds. Um, and that was changing for a little while. There were some um, experiments in allowing some cities to issue their own bonds, issue their own municipal bonds, which were actually rolled back quite recently um, for reasons that I, I hope I can explain um, through the end of the talk. But we have this sense of China, I mean, so I, I teach macroeconomics as well as sort of comparative politics at the business school. So we have the sense that China has its fiscal um, house in order, whereas the United States can't seem to pass a budget or negotiate over anything. But of course, the portrait of that when you break down between central and local looks uh, quite different. So the line here shows the budget balance as a percentage of GDP, but you can see the central budget balance is you know, very much in, in the black, whereas local governments are consistently in the red in China. Um, so since they can't issue their own bonds and they don't necessarily levy their own taxes, um, that means that they're reliant on what we call extra budgetary revenue. Um, so this is a confusing term in China, but it basically means things that are outside what the plan is. So mostly outside of the tax revenue that would be generated given expectations at the beginning of the year. And Professor Sage already went through a number of examples of what that looks like. But mostly it means land sales, and mostly it means indirect debt through what we call local government financing vehicles. So pingtai, for those of you who um, know what I'm talking about. So local governments are not only allowed to, are not only not allowed to issue their own debt, but they can't borrow directly from banks. So they do an interesting thing, which is that they set up a, a financing vehicle that's sort of semi-private, semi-public, which borrows money on behalf of the local government from the bank using land as collateral, essentially. Um, and so we got the number of 25%. Um, the numbers that I have seen look a lot bigger than that. Um, so on the one hand, there's land transfer fees, which is this is the money that accrues directly. So if I were you know, setting up a shopping mall that's a commercial, uh, a commercial lease, then in fact that in the lease, the money for the entire duration accrues to the local government immediately. So not in, in, in terms of installations, but an entire 30-year lease accrues immediately to a local government or 40-year lease. Um, so for that reason, to, to lend out uh, or to lease out a large plot of land is immediately lucrative for local government officials. And so this is data from, compiled from scholars at the Lincoln Land Institute, so Joyce Mann, showing the ratio of land and property related finances. So this includes tax revenue as well as the lease fees themselves and the ratio to local revenue. So we can see in 2000, it begins at 26%. And then basically now we're in 2010, it's a, a over 100%. So they're generating more money through land-related extra-budgetary activities than they are through taxes in general. So in China, we had this sense of the 90s and the 80s and the 90s and part of the 2000s as um, we had you know, urbanization-driven construction. So the question, the, the one that certainly faced Deng Xiaoping and to an extent Jiang Zemin is how, how can, we, can we actually construct cities at a pace that's consummate with the amount of people moving to cities in China. So sort of urbanization-driven construction. And now I would argue we have something different, which looks more like construction-driven urbanization. Um, so we have what, what, what has been called land for welfare schemes, um, much like these uh, exchange certificates in Chongqing and also the land swaps in Chengdu, which I'll talk about momentarily, where rural dwellers can exchange their hukou, their citizenship, 
um, for, from rural to urban in exchange for their land rights, so give up their land rights, they become urban citizens. Um, and so we also have these new inland development zones, Chongqing's and Chengdu's being famous among them, promising literally in a brochure from Chongqing that migrants, that Chongqing has 8 million migrants uh, scattered throughout the country. And it says they can return anytime, almost as if it's a threat. Um, but they expect, right, that, um, that people will urbanize in order to basically suit the construction that they're already planning. So the idea is we create these new districts and then we hope that the population comes to us rather than the population comes, demands more housing, demands more jobs, and we see that sort of part of it. So basically, why do we have this construction-based economy, this construction-driven urbanization? So an example of all of this um, is this land reform in, in Chongqing, the land certificate exchange. Um, and so I want to explain a little bit about how this works, because it's quite illustrative when we think about um, how these things actually go in China. So I've written this, this case on, uh, on Chongqing, and so a lot of this is from um, the research that I've done there. So they have this, it's a, it's a deep yi, what they call it, a land certificate exchange. And for those of you who are familiar with um, the, the language of development economics, it's like a transfer of a development right rather than a land ownership right. So I have these two dots. So Chongqing obviously is a, a gigantic municipal province that has both urban and rural elements of it. So it has both urban hukou holders, so urban citizens who have access to the urban public goods and social welfare regime. So they get unemployment insurance, um, pensions, they get access to health care, education, these kinds of things, whereas the rural dwellers do not, right? They get all of these things provided supposedly through their collective um, or perhaps not at all. So what happens is um, if I am an, a, a rural dweller, so if I live over here, the red dot that's all the way up in the northeast of the province, um, which is the hilliest area and the poorest part of Chongqing, I'd like to move to Chongqing. I'd like to become an urban citizen, find work in the city, and move to Chongqing. So they have a number. So, so what they would like to do is then they would give up their stake in the collective and the development right of the collective um, in, in exchange for citizenship in the city. So the problem with how this normally works is if, lands, if, if land and, and villages are, are taken for urbanization purposes, then there's a negotiation that's central with the, the cadres of the collective, the leaders, the, the village officials. Um, and then a price is settled upon. Um, so this is not in Chongqing. This is more generally. A price is settled upon, and that compensation is then distributed to the peasants. Now, whether that compensation is suitable or unsuitable depends on a number of factors. It's typically unsuitable. But they get a, a, a lump sum compensation. Um, and then typically what happens is um, it's not enough to sustain them. They no longer have any land, they don't have any skills, and they don't have any access to, to live into a city, get unemployment insurance, get pension insurance, which means that on net, despite even if the compensation is high, peasants end up being quite destitute, landless and destitute. So Chongqing wants to solve those problems and solve another problem, um, which is the fact that because property rights in China, in rural China, are not alienable, meaning I, if, if I want to give up my life in the countryside and move to the city, I cannot sell my plot of land, I cannot liquidate it for capital, and I can't transfer it to anyone else, which means that there's a, this phenomenon of what is called hollowed-out villages. So many of you who have been to rural China, there are abandoned structures all through the countryside as peasants have left um, their homes and moved to the cities, but there's no upkeep for that. And given the, the ratio of arable land in China, this is deemed a, a, a deeply inefficient use of land. So Chongqing has this way of solving that, which is, so I'm the red dotted villager, I'd like to move into the city, and I sit, my home sits on a piece of land um, that I would like to exchange. But of course, no developer would like to buy a piece of land, isolated plot, in the middle of the, of the hills in Chongqing. 
So what I actually do is I auction off a certificate, a dipiao, a, a, a ticket for that amount of land, which is then transferred, um, and a developer can develop an equal amount of land in a more urban area. So you see the other dot that's closer to this Liangjiang development zone, which is the heart of the city. And what happens to the former homestead is it's raised and turned back into arable land in order to maintain the required quota of the amount of arable land that cannot be decreased below um, for the city of Chongqing. And it's sort of traded with a more desirable plot of land in the city. Um, so this has been sort of lauded as a very liberal reform. Um, so property rights, um, basically essentially assigning property rights to villagers and allowing them to exchange that in, for capital. It, it cheaply provides more uh, social sort of benefits for the, for the peasants um, than, than, than obviously just compensation um, or land takings alone. Um, but what we do know is actually the purchaser of these, these certificate exchange is about half of the government itself. The Chongqing city government is buying about half of these land certificates and storing them up. Um, and the rest are theoretically purchased by developers. And so, um, so I'll come back to this reform and what kinds of things those mean. But, it's an interesting um, series of events because then we have sort of peasants being urbanized and the more, the more people come, uh, the more the local government gets access to more land to develop and also the more demand for that land is actually generated. Um, and so there's a way in which these, uh, these reforms sort of fit together in the objectives of the local government, which again is trying to encourage massive urban construction as a growth strategy. Um, so this is sort of all going to come together, hopefully, at the end. So land um, also as a political problem. And so Professor Sage talked about their own survey about protests. So we know that um, land is a political problem in what I'd like to call two senses. One is it's a state-society relations problem. So we know um, that fundamentally uh, land has replaced, so according to Yu Jianrong, who's China's foremost sociologist, land has replaced um, protests over taxes and fees as the number one um, social problem in rural China. And so we hear, I mean, basically a weekly uh, protest over land grabs. Most famously, we have Chongqing's most famous nail house here, where um, a, a resident of Chongqing re held out um, and refused to actually vacate and generated a lot of publicity for themselves. Um, hopefully to amp up the compensation in their view. Um, here we have quite disturbingly in Shanxi in 2010, residents hold out residents in a, in a rural village forced to wear placards, sort of reminiscent of the Cultural Revolution, um, it, because they were holdouts. They would not agree to turn over their land rights um, to a, a local city. And also, um, mo mo even more famously, um, the siege of Wukan, which um, was heralded by NPR and the New York Times as a challenge to the CCP rule. It, it most certainly was not in a number of ways. Um, but, but this idea that the, the village of Wukan, people were upset about a land taking and actually kicked out their village leaders and turned the entire city basically into a fortress and refused to let provincial authorities in until they agreed to give them back their land and replace their leaders with the leaders of the protest. They did the latter, but not the former. Um, so we have the sense in which land is an explosive political issue in China. And it's also a massive central local coordination problem. And this is sort of the heart of um, why I'm deeply pessimistic about how this is working in China, which is that the incentives that face local governments in China are certainly to generate as much growth as possible. And the easiest way to do that is through, is through real estate development, through construction. Um, on the other hand, the, the, the central government in China has a number of objectives. One is which to prevent the overheating of the, of the macroeconomy. 
um, to prevent land prices from becoming a social problem, real estate prices from becoming a social problem, to eliminate the conflict between rural, rural leaders and, and society over land grabs, um, and also um, to prevent the kind of debt, the ballooning debt that we see. Um, on, the, on the other hand, it seems difficult for them to actually discipline people at, at the bottom as a result of this institutional constellation. So it's a massive central local problem as well as a state society relations problem. So we get a portrait of this land regime, this national land regime, meaning the rules that govern and the, uh, the, that govern land ownership and land exchange, and also how they're practiced, um, as, as, as quite contradictory. So on the one hand, we get incredibly fast growth in China, incredibly fast growth in urban China, correlated deeply with the incredibly fast growth of the real estate sector. Um, and we also get these distortions, um, so some of which uh, Tony mentioned, but we have these hollowed out villages. We have urban sprawl, the idea that land use in China is basically, by all measures, incredibly inefficient. We have what looks to be like a real estate bubble, which pundits tell us are popping now or cooling down now or can they control it and who knows. Um, we have the perversion of the public interest, so local governments can take land and gongongyi in the public interest, which they define in a quite arbitrary way. Um, my, my husband's actually an eminent domain lawyer for the state of Massachusetts, so I get to see a very different version of this um, that's practiced in the United States. So the public interest in China can be defined as widely as growth or as we wanted to build a highway in this direction. Um, but the negotiation of that is, 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 is deeply one-sided in China. Um, we have ballooning local government debt that's estimated by, by some people to be about 40% of GDP and others to look more like 130 or 160, which looks more like Greece. Um, rather than, um, than Switzerland or something. And we also have the idea of decreasing farmland, a sort of gradual encroachment towards the red line, which the NDRC has determined and the Ministry of Land Resources, below which arable land drops in China is, is, is in, in, in for a food crisis um, and a sustainability crisis. And so we have this sense that on the one hand they're getting fast growth, but they can't stop the hurtling of, of these difficult distortions. So how are we to explain how this has come about, this land regime? How are we to explain the sort of delicate dance that the CCP does between urban growth on the one hand and the political and economic problems that it generates? And so there are a couple of perspectives that come from the literature. And of course, I lay them out first because I don't agree with them. But the first is the property rights thesis. So the idea, um, and this is very much following the work of Douglas North and Barry Weingast and others that in fact, um, a necessary condition for sustainable growth turns out to be private property rights, the ownership over land. And that the conflict and inefficiency and waste and malinvestment, all of these things are necessary and obvious and inevitable byproducts of, an, of a lack of clarity over, urban, over property rights over land. So the implication there is that until, basically, until China creates alienable and transferable property rights, these bads of the urbanization process, the sprawl, right, the abuse of, of people's land rights, um, and also the malinvestment, the bubbles, these kinds of things will continue until alienable property rights are developed. And the second, um, the second sort of idea, which has been more prevalent among China scholars, mostly geographers, has been this idea of institutional evolution. That, you know, look, it's only been uh, two and a half decades since China has had the entire concept of um, land use rights in the real estate sector, and that these are growing pains en route to something that'll look more rational somehow. So China is in transition. These institutions are evolving, and that in the implications there are sort of that land markets are steadily liberalizing, that we're seeing, and they, they point to a bunch of evidence, we're seeing more auctions rather than negotiated um, transfers of land rights, 
that land rights on the East Coast, where there have been land markets for longer, are more liberal and more rational than the ones in the interior. Um, so we, expect, we should expect to see these bads disappear over time um, without any kind of seismic change. So my perspective, which does not really have a name yet, um, so if you have one, I'd be delighted. But I'm going to call it here sort of land as central to Chinese capitalism. Um, and so many of you who are political scientists or social scientists by training um, will understand the idea of institutional complementarity. So the idea that, in fact, um, most, most policy regimes are not individual policies, but they fit, but the institutions that fit together and evolve, sort of co-evolve in a way that changing or tweaking any particular institution is quite difficult, more difficult than we often assume. And so I basically see Chinese capitalism as the same thing. And so um, there's this third land revolution, um, the first land revolution obviously being the one that was carried out under Mao um, in the 40s and the early 50s, the radical redistribution of land um, that was part of the revolutionary mandate. The second being decollectivization in the 1970s or before and then after in some places, which returned household farming um, to farmers rather than from the collective. That was use rights. And this third land revolution is the commodification of, of land in, in urban centers. So the idea, basically, I argue for the first time in Chinese history, that land is a resource that can be exchanged for capital. It's a vehicle for capital accumulation, not for, product, not for productive activity alone, but for generating capital itself. So we have this discovery, which I'll talk about as land as a vehicle for capital accumulation. And that discovery, land itself, rather than the land, these land politics being an accident, the discovery of land itself permitted what, what I call a dramatic reconfiguration of central local relations in China in the 1990s. And land became, quite intentionally on the part of the CCP, a new tool with which it could indirectly manage the macro economy. So the basic thesis statement is, as you see here, the emergence of land financing and the recentralization of the fiscal and monetary systems throughout the 1990s should be understood together as mutually reinforcing institutional developments that have determined the CCP's stewardship of the economy since 1992. So ultimately, land as an economic and political institution in China um, will not be altered, in my view, um, without a major seismic change in the fiscal and financial systems as well. All right, so I will try and make that case by talking very briefly about some looking my, my sort of look into the origins of land policy as we know it beginning in the 1980s. So this is a quite alarming quote, I think, whether we're to believe um, Zhao Ziyang is, is another thing, but he says in his memoirs, this is quite amazing, it was perhaps 1985 or 1986 when I talked to Hoi Yingdong and mentioned that we didn't have funds for urban development. He asked me, if you have land, how can you not have money? I thought this was a strange comment. Having land was one issue. A lack of funds was another. What did the two have to do with one another? It's a quite amazing statement um, by the premier of China at the time, the idea that they had no understanding of land as a vehicle for capital accumulation. Of course, they had some help um, with their friends, um, Hong Kong financiers and others. But the general problem here was that they saw the, returnee, the, uh, the returning of a bunch of migrants from the country who had been sent down during the Cultural Revolution back to cities. People were demanding more investment in urban housing, and they couldn't find the funds to actually do that. They couldn't generate those funds. And so this idea came about that we could separate the use and ownership rights of land. And if you go back to the period, there's a great deal of Marxist rationalization of why this is OK. So if we privatize the use of land and the rights over land, um, this generation of this theory that the, the use and the ownership rights are two very different things. 
Um, so we have this discovery that they could do that. And it, and it followed basically the same pattern that a lot of Chinese um, policymaking follows. So there was a land law in 1986 which said, I quote, no organization or individual may seize, sell, buy, rent, or otherwise illegally transfer land. So that was 1986. And it was amended. An additional sentence was added in 1988 that land use rights may be transferred according to law. That was it. No accompanying regulations, right? No understanding of what the law is, whose land use rights they were, just the, the additional sentence that they may be transferred according to law. So a lot of this was done in the classical Chinese sense through experimentation and then replication. So the experimentation began in Shenzhen in 1987. Um, and so the, the first experiment with leasing a, a large plot of land, acquiring a bunch of lease fees up front, and then using those fees to develop the infrastructure necessary to make the land viable. So that happened in Shenzhen. But you always know that something's really happening in China when it happens outside of Shenzhen. So it happened in Shanghai in the Hongtao Development Zone in 1988. And you know, many of you know the Chinese Olympics started 8-8-2008. So this was 8-8-1988 that they actually did this in Shanghai. So there was this idea that they were doing something radically different, that this was a seismic change, and they needed a little luck in the process. So by the end of 1992, land markets were developing in must of, much of coastal China. And so we see um, the data is that they leased about 272 plots in 1989, then 1360, in 1988, but there were 94 registered by the end of 19, by the beginning of 1992. So you see this growth in basically in Guangzhou and in Shenzhen and also in Shanghai of the idea of leasing these land these land rights and then generating funds for urban development. But this created China's first real estate bubble in 1992. So after 1992, when Deng Xiaoping makes his southern tour and proclaims to get rich as glorious, etc., there's this sort of revival of reforms throughout China <clears throat> that had maybe calmed down after 1989. And we see the growth of land for capital accumulation all over China. So we see that real estate investment to GDP, um, which was only 0.02%, right? So this is 2% of GDP, basically, in 1992, jumps up in 1993. It totally doubles. And so what happens is, in addition to the effects of the Southern Tour, the State Council puts out a document to try and encourage growth of the real estate sector. They say the real estate industry is one of China's new burgeoning industries. It is a large part of the growth of the service and tertiary sector. And with the leasing of use rights for state land and privatization of the housing sector, it will become a pillar industry of China. So between January and June in, in, in 1992 alone, Pudong leased out nine times more land than the previous four years put together. And if you thought three to 94 real estate companies was a lot at the beginning of 1994, by September of 1993, there were 1,300 real estate management companies in the city of Shanghai. Prices also go up substantially. So here you have Pudong in 1988 versus Pudong in the 90s. We know what starts to happen all over China. There are tales, there are brochures that are housed at, at the, the, the Harvard Law Library as well as in the Feng Library, advertising investment to real, in real estate all throughout Hong Kong and Taiwan. Um, there are tales of development offices for new, um, new buildings opening and selling out within minutes. 
Um, so they're described that you can get a 50% return on investment investing in commercial and residential real estate in Hong Kong for um, Hong Kong financiers advertising this, um, that they could get these kinds of returns in mainland China. And the prices are, you know, we, I mean, we have a very hard sense of getting real data on inflation on, on real estate at the time, but there is some anecdotal evidence that it was quite amazing. So, for example, Hoping Guoyuan, which is a residential complex in Shanghai, not a new development. This is not a new development, just a commodified development um, from old housing. The prices started out at 900 yuan per square meter in February 1990, and by May 1991, were 2,400 yuan per, per square meter, and by November 1992, about 5,100 yuan per square meter. So the idea that prices were spinning out of control on real estate in urban China. And then, as you see in the graph down below, we see between 1993 and 1994 a bit of a collapse. So the reports are that there were empty buildings everywhere and problems with loans. So government reports reference all kinds of things, like an enclosure craze, so that landowners, and this is important, enterprises, institutions, everyone, were circling in their land claims and then building new uh, real estate investments to, to lease out to people. Speculative wins, so loads of money from Hong Kong and Taiwan and elsewhere um, going into real estate in China. And there were reports that schools and hospitals and professors and doctors going unpaid because their work units had invested so much in the development of real estate that they were then going to sell on the private market. And then the loans went bad and they couldn't actually pay their staff and faculty. So at this time, the sort of institutional constellation in China was very different. Um, so we have the financial system being very decentralized. So what does that mean? That means that banks and individual cities were not necessarily in the same financial hierarchies that they are now. And so a local bank of China or a local um, savings bank had its own autonomy, its own decisions over to whom it loaned money. And it was quite easy for these institutions, schools, hospitals, again, who were in the business of developing apartment towers or um, office buildings in their backyards, to actually get funding to develop these things. Um, and so when the foreign capital dried up, for whatever reason, mostly because the state council started to get nervous and put capital controls on who could invest in from Hong Kong and Taiwan, the loans started to go bad. So Zhao Daozhong, who was the Minister of, Com of, of Construction at the time in 1994, says, the lesson is very clear. Abnormalities and overdevelopment in the real estate industry can create an economic bubble and false prosperity. So in many ways, what they actually learned was just how much money was possible in real estate at the time, and also the dangers of that much money. And basically, I, I argue that the outcome of that experimental period, of this unknown and under-researched real estate bubble from 1992 to 1994, is basically how we get the system that we have today, in which local governments themselves are the sole claimants to property rights. So between 1988 and 1994, the idea of who could actually lease a piece of land um, was basically heavily decentralized. The understanding that only the local government represents the state had not yet been developed. And so the idea, so you have all these documents from the state council and from the ministry of construction concluding that the real problems, the real causes for this massive real estate bubble that led to unreasonable expectations and quite a bit of social instability was that decentralized finance is to blame, the fact that any, that any bank can loan to any institution to develop real estate. They shouldn't have discretion over lending to anyone for real estate development, and also that only the state should be the one to actually control land. So you see serious restrictions from then on on who could get into the real estate business. So they start to de develop the plans for the Ministry of Land Resources and the regulation of these real estate departments. And Hojia, who is then promoted to the Minister of Construction, says, state-owned land use can be transferred for compensation, 
the goal being to attract domestic and international capital for construction. We must solve the problem of illegal land sales and purchases, especially for those speculators and for the uncompleted buildings. He says, from now on, the Chinese government will monopolize Longduan, the land supply, to strengthen the economic and land planning. When urban land is transferred, the government will control the macro supply of land. Large tracts of land should be transferred and construction plans for land transfer will be united, i.e. there's no more decentralized control over who gets in to the business of, of real estate. So we, here we have this understanding that real estate is a particular industry that only the state should actually should actually control. But they also understand who will benefit from that. So there's a lot of money that comes in real estate. And they started to theorize about local governments as control agents here, but also if they're going to benefit, how much they should depend on land revenue. So National Bureau of Statistics publishes all these studies, analyses of Shenzhen and Guangdong, saying they're getting between 10 and 15% of their revenues from real estate taxes. And 20% of that, um, and near 20% of that if you include the taxes and the land lease fees themselves. They put out a report that estimated lease revenue to be 13 billion and 20 plus billion for those cities. And they sort of started to say, imagine if all local governments had that money accruing directly to them. So a 1995 retrospective says of the first 10 years of land commodification that the 1992 boom showed the CCP that land could go overnight from cold resources to a hot state asset. The National Bureau of Statistics itself concluded, after a few years, when virgin land becomes mature land, through real estate markets, we can preserve value, add value, and in this way add to the wealth of the country. This is a condition indispensable to economic and social development with the first great source of national wealth. So here you have the decision that land would be a state resource and mostly something that local governments can control. So what happens later in the 1990s? So we see a few things. Land becomes strictly a government asset. Only the local government, Nang Daibao Guojia, can represent the state in transferring land. But we also see movements in other institutions. Principally, we see the financial system totally re-centralized. So banks are no longer given local discretion over lending. And instead, they're brought under a strict party hierarchy under Zhu Rongji in the 1990s. Those of you who are interested in this should read a book by Victor Shu who is now at UCSD, who wrote a book on the reorganization of the, the fiscal hierarchy, or the financial hierarchy. We also see, again, the graph that showed the, the fiscal system itself. We see finances directly re-centralized in 1994. So the idea being if local governments had this resource in land, right, then it would be easier to ask, especially the wealthy governments on the East Coast, um, to rely more on land sales and hand up more of their industrial taxes um, to the central government. So what does all of this mean? If we really interpret the, the, the growth of land, uh, the land dependence and land-based development and land-based construction um, as a part of a fundamental institution of ca Chinese capitalism, what does it mean for how we think of Chinese capitalism in the prospects of reform? So in the comparative context, um, there's this idea of varieties of capitalism, that of course capitalism is no such one thing. Um, it means something very different in the United States than it does in Europe, than it does certainly in China. So institutions exist not in isolation, but they're embedded in systems. So it's very difficult to understand, for example, the United States ideas about redistribution without understanding the entire array of institutions that sort of set up our electoral and our, our economic governance system. And so institutional reform without systemic reform is very difficult. So it's hard to tweak one part of an institution since they all sort of evolve together and expect that other things will follow, right? That these are systems that sort of move in an equilibrium. And so we had this understanding that Western European countries um, it chose sort of different institutional arrangements based on the shocks of the 70s and 80s. 
And so they had these strategies for dealing with inflation and unemployment, which are, of course are policy objectives that China has as well. And so they have these acute issues, inflation and unemployment. And how do you adopt the most efficient tools with which to deal with that? And so in some, in some states in Western Europe, they chose uh, collective wage bargaining. So they go through wages to control inflation and that way reduce unemployment by asking people to work the same amount but take fewer wages. In some places, they chose not to do that and instead um, to adopt you know, some sort of currency reforms and things like that. So I think the, anal the analogy to China they also have these goals of controlling inflation and controlling unemployment. So on the one hand, they want people employed. On the other hand, they can't give decentralized control to banks and local governments because they may raise prices by overinvesting. And so the tools they have, they can't, of course, change their exchange rate or wages um, for reasons of competitiveness. And then they can't really do fiscal policy in the sense of tax policy since local governments are competing. So we see this movement towards basically a 15 percent uh, corporate tax rate all over China. If you're charging anything more than that, a factory will not locate in your area. So the idea is they have to do something else in order to control the vicissitudes of the, the national economy. And I think we see that as being land. Land is fiscal policy in China because it's the primary tool for local government revenue generation. So you see the Ministry of Land Resources, when they want to encourage economic activity in one region, they increase the amount of land supply that's available um, for exchange and decrease it in places where they want to see but we also see land as monetary policy. So we know that loans are secured with land as collateral. So in that sense, increasing the land supply that's available allows local governments to take out more loans, which expands the monetary supply or the money supply in general. So what are the effects of this? So many of you are aware of the Chinese stimulus, um, which was a, a, an elegant, I think, total, it's just a sort of microcosm of the Chinese political economy in a few years. So the stimulus starts out in late 2008, 2009. Um, they say it's going to be about 10% of GDP, about $4 trillion. Um, and we hear, you know, the, 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 the central government is going to provide about $1.5 trillion in transfers and direct investment. And the rest will come through local government lending and borrowing. So for the first year, everyone says, wow, China has weathered this economic downturn quite incredibly. So 40% of global unemployment as a result of the financial crisis was concentrated in the southeast of China, in these coastal cities. But despite that, they seem to have kept growing while everyone else is dipping and entering recession. China grows 9-10% in, in 2009. So they're doing quite amazingly. And you look, you can see how exactly it was done. Right? So between 2009, uh, 2008 and 2009, the volume of loans increases like a quarter to 30%. So we can see you know, the largest growth here in Tianjin, um, but a lot in Chongqing as well, meaning that what's actually happening is local governments are taking out massive loans in order to generate development projects um, at the political directive of the CCP. And so what happens then with land prices? Well, th so this is, this is the rate, the percent of change, right, quarter on quarter. So if we see, you know, a percent of change, like, you know, this is like 9% here, that's 9% from the last quarter. So this is a ton of variation in land prices in China. But the fascinating thing here is look at the industrial prices. The industrial prices seem to hardly really change at all. That's like a normal amount of variation. All of the activity here is coming in residential, um, mostly, uh, mostly residential, but some commercial, but mostly residential land, meaning right, that people are basically using real estate investment as a macro investment tool. We see here, like this is, this is the lever of the economy. This is what the CCP has been pulling. And we see that, so they say originally that it's going to be 10% of GDP. It ballooned to about 27%. Why? Because once you introduce this tool, it's very difficult to control. It was very difficult to rein in local governments who wanted to generate more and more growth and more and more revenues by leasing off more and more land.
So in its most insidious variety, we get the city of Ordos, um, which many of you have heard of. So ever since this uh, thing on 60 Minutes aired, I've been in much more demand than I used to be, which I suppose is nice. But so now everyone, everyone knows about these uh, desert cities, right? And this idea that, I mean, this is not totally widespread. But we have this idea that, it, you know, talk about construction-driven urbanization, building cities in order to generate economic development because you have the tool to do so in hopes, right, that the people will eventually come. So what does this all mean for, land, for reform, for the prospect of normalizing or rationalizing the relationship to land, to finances, right, to the amount of people who are coming in and outside of Chinese cities? So, I basically think that reform for the land system must be, or must be accompanied by reform in the financial and the fiscal system. So it has to be seismic rather than piecemeal. And those of you who know anything about Chinese politics know that they're very good at piecemeal and they're not very good at seismic. And in fact, most of the reforms that we've seen have been quite lauded as very liberal, right? very, very important reforms, like HUCO reforms, like the land certificate exchange, social housing, so the idea they're going to provide all this social housing for people who can't afford skyrocketing land prices, and these innovative programs to get around the red line. These have been within the system, system-preserving reforms, um, rather than radical changes. So that means that they've basically not changed this fundamental fact that local governments rely on real estate and construction for economic growth, yet on the other hand, real estate and construction tend to, uh, tend to overheat the Chinese economy. So I just, I just don't see any way where this sort of delicate dance can be avoided um, in the next few years. So thank you very much. This has been a production of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School.